Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon. On behalf of the Graduate Council of the Academic Senate, it is my very great pleasure to welcome you today to the first of two Hitchcock lectures to be given by Professor Yegor Gaidar. The Hitchcock professorship is one of the earliest endowments of the University of California at Berkeley. It was developed from a bequest of property made in 1885 by Dr. Charles M. Hitchcock, a San Francisco physician with a long interest in education. As stated in his will, the purpose of the bequest was to establish a professorship at the University of California for the purpose of giving free lectures on scientific and practical subjects. Fund was allowed to accumulate until 1909 when Hitchcock lectures were instituted with the inaugural lecture by the distinguished chemist from the University of Chicago, Julius Steiglitz. The university received an additional gift in 1930 from Dr. Hitchcock's daughter, Mrs. Lily Hitchcock Coit, best known as a donator of funds to build Coit Tower in San Francisco. Mrs. Coit directed that the professorship made possible by this enlarged endowment be designated the Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock Professorship in honor of her parents. The great extent to which this endowment has enabled the faculty, staff, and students of the university, and the general public as well, to become closely acquainted with distinguished scholars from throughout the academic world is evident by the list in your programs of those who have, been, who have served as Hitchcock lecturers and Hitchcock professors. We are proud to see the long tradition of the Hitchcock Professorship so eminently upheld by a scholar of the stature of Professor Gaidar. Russia has rolled back more than 70 years of the command economy to introduce a market economy under democratic principles. Professor Gaidar has been at the forefront of this radical transformation. He is considered to be the most accomplished and respected among the group of young Russian economists trained in Western economic practices. Before his resignation in 1994, Professor Gaidar served in several positions under President Yeltsin, including Prime Minister, Minister of the Economy, and Minister of Finance. Born in 1956, Professor Gaidar received his PhD in economics from Moscow State University. He is a member of the Russian Academy of Sciences and conducted research at the Institute of Economic Forecasting in the mid-1980s. In 1992, he founded the Institute for the Economy in Transition and currently is its director. Without further delay, I'm pleased to present to you Professor Gaidar, whose lecture topic today is Two Russian Revolutions. Dear friends, dear ladies and gentlemen, to the true, the idea to name this lecture uh, two Russian revolutions wasn't mine. It was the idea of the organizers. Uh, and uh, I even thought about changing the subject because uh, the subject is so broad and complicated. It's fit for not for one lecture, but for a spectrum of lectures. But then I thought against it because really during last years, I spent a lot of time thinking about the compassion between uh, these two Russian revolutions. And uh, from my point of view, a lot of mistakes uh, in the discussions about developments in, in Russia in the late few years are connected with the fact that 
a lot of people do think that we were dealing with the Russian reforms. So with some process which uh, is based on the well-established state, which is able to promote consistent program or reforms, etc., which was absolutely contrary to my understanding what, of what really happened in Russia during these years. We really had to deal with a revolution. And the revolution is a word which is very romantic, especially for the young. For those who had to live through the revolution, the revolution always is a tragedy. It is a terrible pain for everybody who has to go through it. It is also the accusation to the elites of the previous regime, which were unable to implement the systematic reforms, which would allow us to avoid the revolution. Of course, uh, the general historical causes, the general historical preconditions for the revolution, Russian Revolution of the 1917 and the Russian Revolution of the 1991-1993 were absolutely different. In the 1917, we had to deal with the revolution of the early industrial society, uh, first of all connected with the pains of the first decades of industrialization, dangerous conflict about the land property between peasants and the landowners, war. Now we have to deal with a revolution connected with the crisis of the late socialist economy. Uh, absence of the ability to promote further the development of the economy in the framework of the existing social institutions. Level of development which is usually connected with the increase of the level of education, communication, uh, establishment of the standards of the uh, middle class which are hardly compatible with the totalitarian regime. So I would not really like to discuss all of these broad historical issues. I would first of all concentrate on a few similarities which really do exist in the different revolutions, however different they are from the point of view of historical development. And first of all, I would like to address the problems connected with the financial crisis and revolution, procurement crisis and the food supply crisis and revolution, and generally the crisis of the power and the crisis of the state and the revolution, which uh, we could see very well in the history of the great French Revolution of the 18th century, which we could see very clearly in the history of the first Russian Revolution of the 1970, and which we could see and with which we had to deal uh, in the Russian Revolution of 1991-1993. I do remember very well the nice sunny uh, day of 22nd August 91. Coup failed. Leaders of the attempt coup were in jail. Hundreds of thousands uh, of Moscovites were in the streets of Moscow. Russian flags. My friends from Democratical Russia protecting KGB building against the demonstrators. Occupation of the Central Committee of the CPSU office on their Staraya Ploshitz. 
general feeling of joy, of happiness, that uh, the things about which many body dreamed for a long time happened at last. Just few years, few days ago, nobody was sure and nobody really believed that all of this will end this way. Only two years ago, uh, all the world was able to follow the bloody events in Tiananmen Square. And uh, nobody could tell you in August 91 that nobody in Russian history uh, created the basis for hope that it will not be finished exactly the same way in 91 in Moscow as it finished in 89 in Beijing. But with all of this uh, feeling of joy and happiness, also my, I myself was confronted with an increasing worry. As I think many of those present here, I had a chance to read a lot about the February Revolution of 1970. And it terribly resembled February 1970 the general feeling, the general situation, the streets, etc. But also those uh, who know something about Russian history knows how the February 1970 finished, how rapidly it evolved in a bloody civil war and in a cruel dictatorship. So if you try to forget for a minute about the joy and confront the hard social and economical facts with which now the new young Russian democratical government was confronted, it was evident that the situation is very, very dangerous and very unpredictable. Well, I will remind you a little bit about the economic situation in Russia just before the first Russian Revolution, 1970. Uh, first World War, together with the uh, anti-alcohol campaign, started in 1914, resulted in a severe financial crisis already in 1915 and 1916. The result of this financial crisis was uh, more or less usual reaction of the peasants. If they do not believe in money, if they do not believe that uh, uh, money is sound, the usual reaction on this is uh, the limitation of the supply of the food to the big cities. Why sell the grain? to the big cities if the money could rapidly lose its value. So better to keep it to itself and to wait until the situation clarifies. So in uh, 1915 and 1916, uh, country was confronted with the downfall of the production of grain because of the mobilization, etc. But first of all, the problems were connected with the radical downfall of the supply of grain on the market. There was a lot of grain in Siberia, there was a lot of grain in the southern Russia, in, in Kubani, on Stavropol, etc. But uh, it was very difficult to get this grain to the Northwest, to St. Petersburg, to Moscow, to Ural, etc. Uh, the reaction even of the Tsar government 
uh, was more or less uh, inevitable. The attempt to introduce the uh, administrative redistribution of grain, so-called uh, grain redistribution, named by the last SARS Minister of Agriculture. Uh, but the government at the last days of the Tsar regime was weak and unable to implement this administrative redistribution with the necessary vigor. Because if you do try to apply the instruments of the regulation of the repressed inflation, and that's exactly what is the system of administrative regulation of the redistribution of grain was, you, the worst thing to do is to be weak in trying to implement this system. Because the introduction of this system inevitably further undermines the willingness of the peasants to sell the grain for money. Of course, the food shortages in St. Petersburg in February was not the cause for the revolution. But they were one of the factors that influenced the developments in St. Petersburg then. Provisionary government inherited this problem from the Tsar government. And uh, it was evident that there are only two ways of addressing the problem seriously. One is to try to reestablish financial control, to try to reestablish the belief of the peasants in national money, and on this basis to overcome the problem of the food supply to the big cities. Another was to implement the administrative system of the uh, food redistribution with all of the necessary vigor, cruelly, if it's necessary. The provisional government was unprepared to follow any of these paths consistently. It could not stop the rapid money creation. It could not impose the financial control because it was a big government. And also, it could not impose the serious system of the food redistribution because it was weak government. So that meant that during all of the period between February and uh, late 1970, we had the deterioration of the situation with the food supply of the big cities. Bolsheviks, after the October Revolution, confronted with a similar dilemma, were prepared to choose the bloodiest path of Protrasgorska, of food distribution, to extract grain from the peasants using force and killing as many people as it's necessary, which of course was one of the major reasons for the civil war. Well, I mentioned all of this fact more or less evident to everybody who knows the Russian economic history, because the situation in uh, September, October 91 closely resembled what uh, we have seen in Russia at the beginning of the century. Uh, all of the communist command economy was based on the efficient system of the distribution of the material flows. So uh, the presence of the bread in the uh, shops, or the meat in the shops, or the milk in the shops, had not dependent on the interest of the private owners. 
dependent on the ability of the state to impose its will, to order the parts of the redistribution of the resources, to make all of the economic agents obey these orders, and by these instruments to substitute the markets and the market economy. But to work, this system should be connected with the efficient political power. It works only until the factory chief in Krasnodar, uh, collective farm chairman in Stavropol, uh, concern director in Tula, etc., knows that if they disobey disorders, they will be severely punished. So it is a system in which the power and the state are incorporated to the microeconomic transactions. Without the efficient power, without the fear that the power could be executed, you would not find the bread in the shops, you would not find the milk in the shops, you would not find electricity, uh, electricity supply, you would not find railways running, etc. Years of 89, 90, were the years of the crisis of the socialist regime, crisis of the efficient power, which was, were going hand by hand with an increasing economic crisis, increasing crisis of the supply of the big cities. Already in summer 91, shells in Moscow were absolutely free. Nobody was there. Nobody was prepared to sell some anything for money, because money was worthless. And nobody was any more afraid of the state, so any, nobody was prepared to supply it free, to supply it because of the fear. But after uh, the events of August uh, 91, the crisis of efficient power reached next level. The first result of the August events was the radical cuts in the amount of the grain which state was able to procure from countryside next week after the events. Next week after the August events, the state grain procurement were four times down. Practically, collective farms, state enterprises stopped to sell grain to the state because, as I mentioned, nobody wanted money, money was worthless, and nobody was afraid anymore that they could be punished. There was no KGB, no Communist Party, uh, regional organizations, nothing of which they could, should be in fear or could be in fear. So well, we are having uh, grain reserves, which would last us approximately until the beginning of February, with the radical cuts in the amount of the consumptions. Money is worthless, so it's impossible to buy anything for money. Hard currency reserves are exhausted by the previous communist government. We do have zero hard currency reserves. After the communist government during the previous three years exported approximately 1,000 tons of gold, Russian gold reserves are close to zero. So we don't have grain 
to feed the people until the next harvest. We do not have the gold or hard currency to buy this grain. We do not have efficient money for which, national money for which we could buy this grain. And we do not have a power to extract this grain from countryside. So that means that we are in a situation which, in many aspects, resemble the situation with which provisional government was confronted. That's why probably you would understand why in the autumn of the year 91, there was no long line of those wanting to work in the Russian government. Uh, everything that I'm mentioning was evident for a ruling elite. It was evident for the decision makers. And to tell you the truth, nobody could find a more or less simple or working answer on the simple question, what to do. Well, uh, from the beginning, we had the discussions in the Russian executive power, in the Russian government, of what general direction to follow in this situation. There was uh, uh, ideas that we should follow, try to follow the Bolshevik example with the Protrasverska, with the system of the food redistribution. So try to impose emergency rule, try to use military forces, the Ministry of Interior, try to extract the grain from countryside, try to redistribute the grain through the, through the country, etc. Uh, then Vice President Mr. Rutskoy was a strong advocate for these type of the solutions. Uh, I was absolutely sure that it is nonsense, that uh, regardless of uh, what we think is uh, compatible or incompatible with the longer term strategy, this strategy just would not work. After uh, the previous three years, after the August 91, after the Chechenian events of October, uh, November 91, it was evident that military forces, military Ministry of Interior would do nothing to implement this type of the policy. Just do nothing. State do not have necessary authority, will, to try this type of the strategy. Attempt to do it would probably result to the very, very serious problems and maybe to the open conflicts, but would be absolutely fruitless. So if it is the true, and I think that the vast majority of those who participated in this discussion accepted early the fact that it is the true, so what should we do to uh, prevent humanitarian catastrophe, situation which we would be confronted with uh, hunger comparable to which uh, we have seen in 1921, in 1932, in 1947, etc. Uh, it was evident that if you cannot implement the efficient system of the food redistribution, then the only way you have to make markets work at any cost. It was not the time when you could consider, well, let us celebrate a strategy which in a five-year period of time will create preconditions for the efficient market economy, etc. All of this was absolutely out of the question. At any cost, at February 92, we had to get working markets other way around. We would leave the country without food at all. Well, that's easy to say, much more difficult to do. 
uh, I would mention just few problems with which we were confronted. First of all, uh, huge accumulated monetary overhang. During last few years, communist regime practically lost the control over the financial flows. So the budget deficit uh, was running around 30% of the GDP in the year 91. Uh, it was evident that the money supply which, and uh, the share of money in the GDP was approximately uh, around 100% of the GDP is absolutely excessive. And with any step to the price stabilization would inevitably result in a drastic jump in the prices. And as those who are economists know, uh, usually the monetary overhang with the price stabilization after the war uh, was the major cause for the hyperinflation. And if you do have a hyperinflation in the economy which during the 70 years had no efficient money, that just means that you then do not have money. So that means that you are exactly in the same situation. Uh, you do not have a working market, and you have the crisis of the food procurement and the food supply to the big cities. So first of all, monetary overhang. The second, enormous problems with the monetary flows. Budget deficit, as I have mentioned, 30% of the GDP. And the task is to cut it drastically and very rapidly. As you do understand, you cannot invent the popular policies by which you could cut 30% budget deficit uh, as a share of the GDP to something very close to zero, because with this monetary overhang, you could not allow budget deficit, at least at the beginning, much higher than zero. But all of this would be nice if you would not be confronted with a third problem. And the third problem being the fact that we do not have a control over money creation in all of the ruble zone. Remember that uh, in 91, we were one single country, Soviet Union. Now, after the August, at least if not in the paper, then practically, we are 15 independent countries with 16 banks, including the Soviet Union Bank. All of them with all of the ability to create non-cash monetary balance. Uh, the situation comparable to this imaginary scenario, for instance, uh, United States of America disappears. State of California is now independent state. All of the money outside the California, of the California is not the sound money anymore. All of the banks outside of the California are foreign banks. How change of all of this so that you could regain the control over the money supply? How to change the structure of the interconnection between the different previously interconnected by the single monetary union community, etc., etc., etc.? In history, uh, we know one uh, evident example of the similar problems, to the lesser extent, of course, uh, the problems connected with the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, in uh, year 1990. Uh, and the result, as you know, was the hyperinflations in both Austria and Hungary. Only Czechoslovakia, able to rather rapidly implement its own national currency, was able to avoid hyperinflation. So, uh, 
we do not control money supply, and uh, you do not have any simple uh, set of the measures which could allow you to control the money supply at least earlier than in a few months. Practically, by our calculation, earlier than to the, in the six to eight months. You have to rearrange your banking structures, you have to rearrange the system of the connections between the banks in Russia and the banks in other republics. You have to deal with the problems that your cash money is the joint cash money, etc. So that means that, first of all, we do not have six to eight months before the humanitarian catastrophe. Second, we, we, do, not have, we do not have an ability to implement the efficient system of the control over the money supply in the ruble zone before six to eight months. That is the real situation, very evident in the September, October 1991. The situation from which, from my point of view, and I discuss it with many of my colleagues, there is no evident foolproof solution. There is no strategy, strategy which will grant you not only, not even the efficient reforms or painless reforms, but just the solution of this simple problem of how to resolve the problems of, of the food supply to the big cities in a situation of revolution when you, can, you don't have the control over your own monetary system. Well, uh, There was a lot of discussions about how to deal with this problem. And then uh, we were at the agreement that in this situation, we just have no other strategy but, first of all, to try to implement as rapidly as we can uh, monetary control over the money supply in Russia. So as rapidly as you can, divide the ruble zone. Second. We cannot wait until we will do it, until the price liberalization. So the liberalize the prices as rapidly as you can. Third, because uh, the danger of the hyperinflation in the context of the huge monetary overhang and the emission from another republics is very serious, try to be as restrictive as you can in the budgetary policy at least next few months after the price liberalization, so to uh, create the preconditions for the remonetization of the economy and uh, to stop hyperinflation. I don't, even now, I thought a lot about it and I discussed the matter, I don't see any other possible or reasonable strategy in this situation. But also you have to understand that it was a strategy which were not granting us the success at all. All the time when we were, for instance, cutting five times the military expenditure, and that was exactly what we were doing, increasing uh, the evaluated tax from zero to 28, etc. So making a lot of the decisions which uh, usually would bring any democratic government down in any stable democracy. All the time we were not sure that these measures would be enough because uh, they could be confronted and were confronted with the uh, uncontrollable uh, emission in other uh, republics, members of the ruble zone. Uh, our belief was, in effect, that the Russian economy is so big a share in the Soviet economy, in the ruble zone, that somehow, at least for a short period of time, we will be able to adjust to this 
uh, money creation in other republics. And really, that proved to be right. Uh, from February, we started to get, at least uh, with some delay, with two or three week delay, information about uh, how big the emission uh, was from another republic to Russia. And we are trying to prepare as rapidly as we can for the dissolution of the rubles. It was a very, very interesting time. For instance, the time when the uh, professor in Moscow was getting eight times less in the same rubles than professor in Kiev. Because Russia were trying to be very restrictive in monetary policy, and the Ukraine was very easy. Very easy. Uh, the then Ukrainian Prime Minister, Mr. Fokin, uh, had a very nice imp imp uh, expression. It was, why to control budget deficit if you have the printing press in your hands? <laughs> uh, and he was using this printing press as radically as he could. Uh, it also had a political implications. For instance, uh, I do remember very well discussions about the uh, Chernomorsky flot, uh, Black Sea fleet, um, and uh, the essence was that we were unable to provide financing to them, and Ukraine easily printing money was providing all of the money necessary for the Black, fleet, Black Sea fleet. Well, uh, but generally, with all of these problems, uh, the result was uh, achieved. At the 1st of July, uh, 92, we were able to implement uh, ruble as a national currency. We were able to start controlling the inflow of money to Russia. At the moment, we had the working markets we were able, with a very high inflation of the beginning of the year 92, to avoid the hyperinflation. And in summer 92, it was evident that the food crisis is behind us, that if you do have money, you will have grain or any other foodstuffs, that the willingness of the uh, agriculture to sell the food for now convertible currency is high. So all of these problems are behind us. But, but of course, we had to pay a lot for it, pay a lot for it politically. Uh, many times I was criticized for the fact, including in Russia, for the fact that we were not explaining at the time what we are doing, what happens in the economy, etc. Well, uh, for instance, now I try to explain to you what happened. Probably you would agree with me that if we try to explain it, in December 91, January 92, nobody would prevent catastrophe. If you would try to explain that we are practically flying on the jet uh, without uh, gasoline, that nobody is granting us that we could land, uh, the panic would be unavoidable, and I think the results would be disastrous. But then, of course, uh, as a result of this very, very difficult adjustment, we practically exhausted all of the possibilities for political money. As you know, it is your when you are dealing with uh, radical changes, uh, your possibility for political support and the money war are very high at the beginnings. And then they start to be limited, 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 more and more limited, and then 
they became close to zero. That's exactly what happened with us uh, at the end of the spring, beginning of summer of the year 92. It was evident that it is impossible to proceed further with the financial stabilization, to cut radically down the inflation rate, to create the preconditions for uh, the economic growth on the market basis, if we will not resolve another crucial problem, also having a lot in common with the problems uh, of the first Russian revolution, the problem of the divisions of power or dual power. What also was not very easy to understand uh, to those who had no chance to work uh, at uh, Russian uh, institutions at the moment was that uh, we had not one single government at the moment. We had a few governments. Like, for instance, in the 1970s, it was a few governments practically. The government, provisional government, government of the uh, Soviet, of the uh, workers' deputies, etc. So we had a government. We had a majority of the Supreme Soviet, which uh, were constitutionally unrestricted to interfere in any measures. We had a central bank, which was subordinated to the Supreme Soviet and absolutely responsible. We had the presidential administrations, which uh, was not exactly the government. And in this situation, it was terribly difficult to implement anything like a consistent economic policy. Of course, we tried to implement reforms, including uh, privatization, especially small-scale privatization, to prepare ourselves for the large-scale privatization, to build up the social basis of the support for the market economy in Russia. But all of this was, first of all, struggle. It was not as if government is elaborating the policy and making the decision and then implementing the policy. It was uh, like we are elaborating the policy and then we are fighting for this policy, trying to block uh, another political forces which are able to prevent any progress. So at the moment we were living under the previous Soviet constitution which made it absolutely unclear who can do what. And until this problem was resolved, any serious problems with the any serious progress with the stabilization of the economy or politics in Russia was practically impossible. Uh, I know that uh, a lot of the uh, observers are blaming Yeltsin for the fact that after August event, he had not dissolved uh, Supreme Soviet and had not called for the early elections. When I'm reading all of this, I do understand how uh, unjust are many uh, objections, for instance, to Kerensky policy in the year 1970. For instance, that he had not dissolved the Soviet of uh, workers' deputies uh, in uh, July 1970, etc. Uh, from my point of view, the idea that Yeltsin could, somewhere in August, September 1991, dissolve Supreme Soviet was absolutely unrealistic. The Supreme Soviet only one month ago supported him in uh, August coup events. Uh, 
he had no constitutional power to dissolve it. Soviet Union still existed. Nobody would understand this move from the president. It would be the terrible political mistake and would not be understood by anybody at the moment. But uh, in year 92, it was evident that the growing dual power and uh, the weakening of the state mechanism as the results of this dual power are undermining the, Russian, the possibility for the Russian state to anything like an organized reforms or progress to the uh, stability. Well, just one story to show how practically it worked. Well, uh, spring 93, uh, Chelyabinsk Regional Soviet decided that they would like to have the elections of the head of the regional administration. Regional court card uh, rules that this solution is unlawful, that these elections would not, should not be enforced. Soviet proceed with the elections. Administration ignored these elections. Chairman of the Soviet wins the elections. Government and the court does not uh, accept the results of these elections. Supreme Soviet accepts the results of these elections. Head of the regional militia uh, betrays the present head of the administration and supports the new elected head of the administration. Head of the city police supports the previous head of the administration. Central Bank supports the new elected uh, administration. Ministry of Finance tells that only previously elected head of the administration is lawful and just. You do understand that a big nuclear state just could not live in these conditions. The result is the criminalization of the society, is a weakening of all of the state structures, terrible, unresolvable economic problems, very difficult situation for the society. It is evident that somehow this situation of the dual power should be resolved, other way around, the explosion is inevitable. The situation would be uncontrolled. Well, during year 92, uh, all the time I thought that uh, it is possible to resolve this problem of dual power on the basis of the compromise. And uh, when we discussed the issue, I tried to persuade Yeltsin that the possibilities of the compromise are not existent that somehow we will have to uh, agree with the Supreme Soviet, with the Supreme Soviet majority, to the changes in the Constitution, which will eliminate this mess in state machinery, which will make the division of the power evident, simple, and understandable. Uh, when uh, the tensions between the President and uh, the Supreme Soviet were especially intensive in December 92. Uh, I myself uh, give him an advice that probably we have to try the compromise, my resignation as a prime minister, for the agreement of the Supreme Soviet majority for the referendum on the new constitution. 
This agreement was made on so-called constitutional negotiations in December 92. It was voted by the Congress of the People's Deputies. It was in front of all of the country. Uh, the majority of the Supreme Soviets uh, get what they wanted. They wanted the resignation of our government. They got it. And in a two-week period of time, of course, as you would expect, they refused to honor their own part of the deal. Well, what referendum? We don't know any referendum. Referendum will be harmful, etc. Really, that was the moment when it was clear for me that probably it is impossible to make any kind of the compromise with these people. Yeltsin still tried, if you would remember history of the year 93, he tried a few times to make the compromise. On the 8th Congress of the People's Deputies, a father and father and father. They tried to impeach him, they were unsuccessful, uh, he won the referendum, people once again expressed his support, their support for his policies, etc. And the summer 93, it was evident that all of the resources at the hands, in framework of the Constitution, in the hands of the Yeltsin are practically assessed. Well, uh, the mess I mentioned was in rapidly increasing. Economy was in a situation of the rapid decline, with the inflation running around 20%, and government, of course, in this situation, unable to do anything to cut the inflation. Poverty rapidly increasing, because in our case, and the statistics is showing very well, uh, poverty is closely connected with the inflation. The higher is the inflation, the higher is the poverty rate. Uh, all of the financial assets were concentrated in the financial speculation. Nobody would invest in the real sector with these rates of inflation, etc. It was evident that nothing could be done without the clarification of the institutional solution and without the new constitution. It also was evident, first of all, that the uh, Supreme Soviet majority will never accept any compromise. So in this situation, what to do this time for Yeltsin? Practically, he was confronted with only three possible solutions. First, to resign giving all of the power to the communists and the radical nationalist majority of the Supreme Soviet, showing that we had one more Kerensky in our Russian history, betraying the millions of people who supported him two times in 91 and 93. Second, to do nothing and to see how economy is deteriorating, social structures are falling apart, uh, crime increasing, anarchy, uh, prevailing in the major part of Russia. Or third, to go away from the constitutional field and uh, to proclaim, to dissolve the Supreme Soviet and to proclaim the early elections. For me, it was evident that he cannot follow both, that the first and the second solutions would be absolutely irresponsible. So that means that he had only one solution, and that was to dissolve the Supreme Soviet to uh, call for the early elections and to put the constitutions to the popular vote. But also it was evident that when you are trying to go in this way, nothing is granted to you. 
Nobody can tell you how the military forces would react, how the Ministry of Interior would react, how the previous KGB, which doesn't like at all uh, new democratic government, would react. So you are entering the field, you have to enter the field, which is terribly unpredictable. That was, of course, what Yeltsin thought during the summer 93. Also, it was evident that the economic situation rapidly deteriorates. In August, already inflation was 29% per month. Uh, Supreme Soviet was preparing to adopt the law which will make all of their responsible decision made previously obligatory for the financing by the central bank and the government, which will inevitably lead to the hyperinflation and the destruction of the market mechanisms. It was evident that the Supreme Soviet is very well prepared for confrontation, so they are prepared for the actions and they practically are provoking Yeltsin. Uh, and then the solution was for him to do. To tell you the truth, I would not like to be on his place in these days. Uh, he asked me then once again to join his government. I had a quite clear, as a senior deputy prime minister, I had a quite clear understanding of what we are being confronted with during the next few days. Could not of course, uh, not accept this invitation. Uh, tried to call him and to tell him that, from my point of view, the timing for his solution is terribly badly selected. That uh, it is very inefficient to do exactly the thing your opponents are expecting you to do, exactly in the moment when they are expecting you to do it. Well, he hesitated for a while and they told me that the solution is made and then, as it will be. Well, I would not really like to tell you in the details uh, the events of these uh, September, October 93rd days. They are more or less well known. Uh, what strikes me and what is uh, connected with the, this, uh, uh, the, the topic of this lecture was how all of this resembled terribly to what I myself had a chance to read about the 1997, 1917, but this time not about February, but about October. Uh, dual power. Nobody can understand who will do what. Uh, Yeltsin is trying to involve the opposition in the process of the new elections. The opposition is more than all interested in the destabilization of the situation, in some kind of an open conflict, blood, etc. On the 3rd of October, opposition succeeds. Approximately 10,000 of the well-organized uh, boys of the communist and the radical nationalist organizations were able to, uh, to go through militia cordons, to reach the White House, and then to occupy the uh, mayor office of Moscow, and then to start for Astankin. Uh, when uh, 
I entered the meeting of the Russian government on the 7th past meridium on the 3rd of October 93. I thought how close it is to the pictures I had chance to read about the last meeting of the provisional government. For instance, in the book of papers, etc. Uh, the feeling that the government is not controlling the situation anymore. The Minister of Electricity telling, well, something in his system was taken by the opposition. Minister of Communication telling, well, something in his system was taken by the opposition. The information that they uh, reached the control over the custom office. I really would not understand why custom office from the beginning. I thought that maybe they are so much in a hurry to uh, issue licenses on the oil export for them. Uh, only later I understood uh, that was uh, published that they uh, supposed to use the uh, custom office to prevent the immigration of the leaders of the so-called uh, bourgeois regime uh, toward the West. Uh, well, it was evident that we are exactly in a situation in which if nothing happens, military forces, Ministry of Interior forces would do exactly nothing. It is exactly the type of the situation in which uh, you cannot reach the generals, you cannot, the generals could not reach the colonels, colonels could not reach the, the captains, etc. When everybody became ill, nobody would like to be held responsible, nobody functions, not, nothing works, etc. So you have a situation in which 10,000 of well-organized and armed men are absolutely capable of getting the control over Moscow, and that means over the country. Uh, all the time uh, when I was trying to understand what happened in 1917, uh, I could not find an answer why there was as many officers in St. Petersburg, as many of the people who were not at all sympathetic to the communist ideas. They wanted somehow to be organized, and you can also read it in the memoirs, etc. And they could not find anybody who would take responsibility and organize them. So it was my perception at the time that it's not exactly not the moment when you have to put your hopes that somebody will defend democracy for you. Some General Kornilov, General Krasnov, or somebody, somebody, somebody else. It's exactly the moment when you have to defend democracy yourself. That's why I made the decision for which I was criticized for a very long, long period of time. First of all, to prepare to distribute the arms to the people if it's necessary, and then to collect the people who are supporting Yeltsin or around Mossadegh. Uh, it was a very difficult decision, to tell you the truth. Very difficult, because I was telling the people, ordinary people, to the streets of Moscow, when there was a battle, shooting. Uh, of course, it was the, the, the state could be blamed, and the government could be blamed, that it had to uh, call for the people to fulfill its own duties. But it was the, mess, the point that could be discussed further, whom to blame. And now, what was necessary is not to repeat the terrible mistake of provisional government, thinking that somebody 
will resolve this problem for them. That it is not uh, for the people to defend itself against the well-organized adventures. Uh, when uh, around 9.30, 8, uh, 10 o'clock, I have seen the tens of thousands of the Moscovites around uh, Mosred. For me, it was clear that they will never win. That if it will be necessary, of course, we will distribute the arms to the people and we will resolve the problem ourselves. But also sure that now, when it's evident that we are not dealing with a popular rebellion against the, against the Yeltsin regime, but with the uh, adventure that the people is on the side of Yeltsin democracy, it was evident that the military force now will start doing things. The picture of the tanks shooting on the White House uh, were on the TV, I think, hundreds of times. And uh, I think that a lot of people blamed Yeltsin for what he had done for all of this picture. Everybody forget about the 3rd of uh, October. Everybody forget about the terrible feeling of fear which uh, was true all over, not only in Russia, but through the world. Everybody blamed Yeltsin for the tanks shooting by the, on the White House. I think that if uh, uh, Kerensky was courageous enough to uh, destroy the communist uh, plot by efficient military action. Also, a lot of people would blame him for using these measures. I know that a lot of people who, at the evening of the 3rd of October 93, were crying from the fear and asking where are the military and when Yeltsin will be able to uh, implement them. And now exactly the same people are making Yeltsin to blame. They are forget for everything and they are holding Yeltsin to blame for what he have done. To tell you the truth, I think that it was only possible solution and it was responsible solution. Any other solution would be terribly dangerous for Russia and irresponsible, with all of the consequences. Practically, we on the 3rd and the 4th of October 93, we had a small, short civil war in Moscow. And it's very important that we were able to prevent this short and the small civil war becoming the huge, terrible, and the bloody civil war to all the Russia as a country full of the nuclear weapons. Nobody could tell, took it for granted at the evening of the 3rd of October. Well, uh, I think that uh, the event, set events of the 3rd and the 4th of October, then elections uh, in December 93, Adaptation of the new constitution in uh, December 93 practically finished the page in the Russian history which could be called the Russian Revolution of the year 1991-1993. Further, we had a lot of political problems. 
successes and the great unsuccesses in the policy reforms. I will try to address these issues in the next lecture, but the history of this revolution was over. Of course, when we are comparing what happened in 1917 and 1991-1993, it's evident that the major part in the different results of these events played the broad social and economical factors. Of course, the crucial point was that uh, eight years ago, we were dealing with a society which was illiterate by 80%, peasant by 80%, uh, the society in which the uh, educated minority was a very small minority, etc., etc. Now we were the literate society, well-educated society, society which is much more difficult to manipulate, etc. And for instance, the division in which those who are usually highly educated were on the side of Democrats and those who were not as educated on the side of the communists was very evident in, during 91-93. And of course, uh, the radical changes in this field strongly influenced the uh, different outcome of the events. But, well, uh, I'm acad academic myself. I studied the revolution before I had to deal with them. Uh, and uh, uh, this personal experience just uh, allow uh, to understand some, theory, some things probably better than anything you can read from the books. Uh, in the revolution, you have to deal with a very strong uh, social and economic developments. It's like... Uh, heavy train, when it goes in a high speed, it's impossible to stop it. But you can change the ways a little bit. And this heavy train with a high speed will go in a quite another direction. And then all of the specialists will explain how inevitable it was, how it could not be another way, etc. So I'm very happy that, being the specialist, we don't now have to explain why democracy could not survive in Russia, why it was evident for everybody for the, for the very beginning, how it is connected with all of our history, etc. We still are confronted with a very, very serious problems. We need a lot of time to create a working, efficient market economy and a stable democracy in our country. But at least until now, we succeed in creation, at least the basis for the possibility of doing this. Thank you. Yeltsin controls the media, or television, 
and which is one of the main question media. And so this hiding the interest of the ruling class and of the elected imperialism behind the democracy is no different from uh, most countries of Latin America where you have democracies where you've got like democracy to be winding up within Russia, where democracies where a few people are very rich and a lot of people are extremely poor. So well, uh, it is a very, very broad question. I can try to answer it. Well, uh, with the uh, revolution of 1917, of course, uh, the uh, communists were able to mobilize the support of the peasants, first of all, because of the conflict around the land, and of the workers because uh, of the promises of the paradise and the war. Uh, well, uh, we have a long history of the socialism behind us, which defers us with Latin America. So we know uh, uh, that some solutions are not solutions. Uh, that's why probably uh, the distribution of the social forces in, uh, around the late post-socialist revolution, when we had to deal with the consequences of the socialist experiment, was a little bit another. Well, about the press, the communists had a full control over the press before 91, and somehow it had not helped them. Uh, the communists still do have the biggest network of the regional newspapers, uncomparable to anything in the control of any democratic organization, absolutely uncomparable. It had not helped them. So uh, our experience shows, and but I will uh, tell about it uh, in a bigger detail in the next lectures, that there are limits to the ability to manipulate people. At least in Russia, the people now are much more rational than you would think. Well, uh, generally, the division was uh, approximately on the, uh, these lines, on those who supported Yeltsin and the Democrats and those who supported uh, communists and the radical nationalists. Usually, the uh, majority of the educated was for Democrats. Majority of the low educated was for the communists. Majority of the young were for the Democrats. I'm sorry, but majority of the old was for the communists. Majority of those living in the big cities were for the Democrats. Majority of those living in the rural areas were for the communists. So a usual type of the person who supported uh, Democrats were young, educated uh, person living in a big metropolitan city. Usual, uh, uh, usual uh, type of those supporting the communists was old, low-educated person living in a small city or countryside. Excuse me? White House was bombed not on the 3rd, but on the 4th of October. Uh, on the 3rd of October, uh, first of all, I addressed the people on the Russian television through asking them to uh, come to the support of democracy around Mossovet. Then I was addressing the people around Mossovet. Then I was addressing the people around Kremlin, which were also were gathering to support uh, Yeltsin and democracy from there. Then I was uh, in the government meeting. Then once again, I was in the Mossovet. On the uh, uh, recent health problems of uh, President Yeltsin, uh, uh, first off, uh, what kind of power do you think uh, communists will try and assert in the Russian parliament? And number two, 
uh, who do you think uh, is the possible successor for the Russian president? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I think that now everything is more or less okay with the health of the president. So at least in the Russian press, it is not anymore the news. Uh, the general reaction of the press to the attempts of the administration to uh, discuss the problems of the presidential health is that uh, who is interested in, in it anymore. Uh, so I would, I would think that it is the topic to be discussed. Uh, as to the communists, to tell you the truth, uh, they will be influential in the parliament, of course, but I think that they do not have uh, chances to win next presidential elections. They had all of the Trump cards this year, absolutely all. Well, if they lost this time, I think they would not win presidential ever. One more. Uh, could you compare the role of the military officers and uh, uh, enlisted people uh, in both of those revolutions? <laughs> Well, uh, the, uh, here enormous difference between these two revolutions was that the first revolution was uh, in the time of the First World War. So, of course, the role of the army was uh, much, much higher than in the Second Russian Revolution. The idea of peace, which appealed to the peasant majority with the uh, weapons, of course, was one of the most uh, important vehicles uh, which uh, created for the Bolsheviks the possibility to uh, have the power. Of course, the officer, the division of the army on the officers which were connected with the highest strata of the population and the peasantry uh, was much higher, much more serious than now in, so in a Soviet and then Russian army. Uh, and as you know, the officers were uh, quite important part of the white movement, etc. Well, uh, uh, in the second Russian revolution, uh, in the majority of the cases, the major role of the army was that it is trying to play no role. It was so in August 91, uh, when the major solution of the army was to do nothing. And that, to some extent, was in October 93, when army also tried every, to do nothing if it is possible. And it was very difficult uh, to uh, make the army do something. And as I have mentioned, I was absolutely prepared to the case that we will have to resolve the problems ourselves if it will be impossible to make them. Because, of course, the casualties would be much higher. Okay. Okay. Yes. Could you please briefly explain the two things that you brush over? First, how did the um, communist redistribution <coughs> down before uh, August 91, and second, how did you uh, efficiently avoid the, the food crisis in uh, February 92? Mm -hmm. First, uh, how the uh, food uh, system of food distribution break out, break out before, before the August? Well, uh, this system to work, you need a very efficient system of the control over the order fulfillments. You have all of the country should be uh, integrated by structures of the bureaucrats which do obey the orders of the higher level bureaucrat. What happened with the late year with the crisis of the communist power was that this system started to disintegrate. For instance, the Republican authorities 
started to declare that they are the supreme power. So, for instance, they started to give their own orders to the enterprises where to send the resources. Enterprise, the regional authorities under the Republican authorities, confronted with the different orders from the Union and from the Republic, started to give their own orders. Enterprise director confronted with the orders from the Union, Republic, and the region decided that it, it would do as it wished, telling to each other that it had to obey the different orders. So that means that the system which allowed to manipulate the millions of tons of grain just stops the function. Uh, on the second question, well, of course, it was terribly tight because the grain reserves was practically non-existent, but uh, when we had the ability to have a ruble national currency as something in a short supply, something you wish to have, the uh, collective farms started to sell grain for rubles. That was really the turning point. When it was evident that we can buy grain for rubles, it was evident that we could avoid the humanitarian catastrophe. One last question. Despite the privatization in Russia, Russia has one of the lowest unemployment rates of all of those countries. Could you explain this phenomenon? Well, yes. Uh, two points. First of all, uh, the wages were very flexible, practically, in the Russian economy. And that was, of course, quite important part of the explanation. And the second is that in Russia, still, the enterprise is much more than just the enterprise. It is much more than just the employer. It is the community. So for the enterprise, the open life is the measure of absolutely rust resort. Also for those working in the enterprise, even if the enterprise is in crisis, even if the wages are very low, the fact that maybe practically it works in the second economy, it's in judging trade, etc., but it the person prefers still to belong to the enterprise. So this combination of these two factors, I think, play the major role here. Let's uh, thank Professor Gaidar again. I hope to see you Thursday. Thank you. <laughs>